from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and the whole chapter. Yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Father, we pray that you'd add a blessing to that beautiful reading of your wonderful love letter from heaven. And that we will encounter Jesus Christ and come to you, Father, through him. As Ross brings your word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, applying it to our minds and our hearts. So to that end, Father, we pray for Ross. And we pray for ourselves that we will understand the motive for service and ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a bit nervous to speak, actually. I think sometimes when you get up and there's such a sense of God's presence and God's been working so powerfully in the lives of so many people, the wrong response is to get up here all confident. And in fact, a sense of trepidation and nerves. But the living God is amongst us, right? He's present here and working in people's lives. To pray is such a privilege. To pray for people who've been touched by his love. So Michael Costa um, was a great orchestral conductor of the 19th century. And during one of his incredible rehearsals, he had the great orchestra there and a huge choir were, were kind of playing and singing at the same time, a cacophony of noise. And midway through this particular rehearsal, the piccolo player, a small instrument of a piccolo, stopped playing. And suddenly, Michael, Sir Michael Costa shouts out, Stop, stop! What's happened to my piccolo? Where's the piccolo? God loves every single person in this room. And every person in this room has been called to help that transforming work that he has called us into in the city. I don't know if you come here this evening thinking, you know, but I'm not significant enough for us. I haven't got the right gifts. I haven't been called in the right way. What can I really contrib contribute to this church? There's so many other people who do these other amazing things. I, I'm not on the same level as them. 
And yet there's one truth I can profoundly see coming out of this book that we read called the Bible. And it is God has gifted each and every person in this room. And we cannot accomplish what we have been called to do if you do not use those gifts, if you do not work and minister as part of this family. Amen? What an amazing privilege that each and every person contributes to that transformative act that God wants to work amongst us but out there in the city. There is no way we can accomplish our vision of, of following, being uh, followers of Jesus in all of life, growing in love for God and for others, as each and every person in this room doesn't contribute to that particular task. So tonight, as, as Clive was saying earlier, we're starting this new series entitled Equipped to Serve, Seeking Spiritual Gifts. And that's kind of the aim of this particular series, that we hope that you discover something of the spiritual gifts maybe that you have. Maybe you've known you've had them for a long time, but, but you've kind of, you, know, you just kind of forget that you've got a gift and you, and you stop working with it. You stop asking God to empower you to grow in that particular gift. We want to talk about spiritual gifts, explore what they are, and, and, and hopefully help you to seek them, that we can be built up as the body of Christ to see this city transformed. That is the heart of this, of this series. So I want to ask you to start, what are spiritual gifts? And the United um, Methodist Church website defines it beautifully. Spiritual gifts are not our talents or skills. They are the grace of God at work within us, empowering us to match our deep passion with the world's deep need. The gifts are given to individuals, but they are given to build and strengthen community and to meet the needs of those around us. The spiritual gifts are, 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 is, is the act of God's grace and power working in our lives in order that we may build up the community of faith, that we may be better equipped for what we're doing out there. And I haven't said that in a long time, so excuse me for saying it, but boom, right? It doesn't really work as well when you kind of build up <laughs> to actually saying the word. So what are the kind of spiritual gifts? Maybe you're unfamiliar with this language. What kind of spiritual gifts can you be equipped with? The Wagner Modified Houts Questionnaire, worst name ever for a questionnaire, says this about different spiritual gifts. It kind of gives you a, a list of questions. You answer them and you, you score up at the end and it gives you potentially your spiritual gifts. I would never kind of, it's, it's hard when you prescribe spiritual gifts in such a methodical way, but it's certainly a helpful tool. And it lists these as potential spiritual gifts. Prophecy, pastor, teaching, Wisdom, knowledge, exhortation, discerning of spirits, giving, helps, mercy, missionary, evangelist, hospitality, faith, tongues. Steve, you kept up like a boss. Thank you, sir. The aim of this series is that we explore what are these gifts? Are any of these gifts ours? I mean, that was only a few of them as well. There's so many more gifts that we could be called to that we could have as a consequence of God's grace and love working in us. What are the gifts we've been given? How are we using them? Are we using them? Are some of the questions we want to explore in this series. A gifting that um, I believe I've, I've been given is, is prophecy. And I've, I think I've told you a story before where um, I discovered that particular gifting in Clive's office where I felt, don't. Don't, don't say it. Marilyn's not here, so I'm going for it. She just don't get us to listen to the thing. Um, essentially, I felt God saying, kiss your wife. And that's what I ended up telling, telling Clive in the office when he, when he asked God to, to kind of give me this particular gift of, of, of prophecy. And prophecy isn't, I think, as sometimes people think of it, as a kind of wizard who predicts the future. Prophecy is, is defined um, by William McRae as the capacity to receive and speak forth truth, which has been given by direct revelation from God. And the time... I remember seeing this gift most beautifully expressed was when a long time ago in, in Andover, where I used to live, um, that was the sign they do for Andover because apparently I talk about it a lot. 
And, and, and in Landover, there was a place called Serum House, which is like a youth hostel. So it gets a, a lot of guys from broken homes, difficult backgrounds. And I met them through playing football with the church team. They kind of came along. I got to know them. And they wanted to explore more about this, this Jesus. So we did this Christianity Explore course at my house. They would come along. We'd have some, some pizza. And we'd watch. I always thought the contrast was brilliant. You had Rico Tice doing the particular course. They were very posh. British accent, surrounded by these lads whose language was choice, I'll say that much. So we had these kind of conversations about Jesus, and it had got to about the 10th the week, and we were asking, would well, you want to commit to this? Is this Jesus someone that you want a relationship with? And the guys kind of sat quite uneasy on, on, on the sofa, as you can imagine, when I'm kind of asking these really deep questions. And one of them in particular looked so genuine. I'd seen God work in his life, and there was something something holding him back. He just couldn't make that step. So I went into the kitchen to kind of prepare some more pizza. I say prepare, it's a five-minute job in the oven. And as I was going in, I was, I was asking God, what is it you've got for this guy? What do you want to say to him? Is there anything you could tell me about him? And I had this real strong sense that God was saying that he'd been abandoned by his father when he was younger. And when I get, if you get that kind of word, I mean, that's, that's potentially damaging, right? I mean, you've, you've got to discern that. And I was nervous. I thought, really, that is such a tender item to deliver to someone. And then a sense in which the issue with this was that because he'd been abandoned by his father, he couldn't imagine the concept of a heavenly father, a God who loved him. That didn't make any sense because his father had, had you know, screwed him over. And then the passage of Romans 8, that God will never leave, um, he worked, what's the passage? Hi. <laughs> And all creation to be able to separate us from the love of God. In my defense, I did quote two other passages in my head. So, if that makes it any better. Then nothing will separate us from the love of God. So I went to him quite nervous about this and, and, and stood there continuously looking at the floor. And you know, I'm quite intense with my eye contact. So for me not to look in his eyes was, was, was clearly showing my nervousness. And I remember telling him this and I looked up and the guy was broken. He'd been abandoned by his father when he was younger. And it completely messed up with how he viewed God. He gave his life to Jesus there and then. It was so cool. God has spoken into his life, singled him out in that moment to tell me something about this guy. And it, it transformed him. It changed the way he viewed God because suddenly it wasn't just a thing in a book. It wasn't just something he heard from love, some lovely posh guy on the TV. But it was something that was changing his life. Something that was related to him and made sense to him. I know people have got an incredible gift of, of hospitality. You walk into the house and instantly you feel at home, right? Have you ever experienced people like this? They make you feel special. There's something about the way they treat you, something about the way they, they even just tidy and organize the house that makes you feel like you are the, the best person in the world. I love that. I know people who um, have got the gift of helps. And that can seem for some people like such an insignificant gift just to be able to help people. That seems so pointless, but yet there's been moments where I've not accomplished the bigger thing that people have seen me doing like this at the front if it wasn't for someone who in the right moment just knew exactly what to do to get me there. People that have got the amazing gift just to know exactly when to help someone in a particular situation. I've seen people with the incredible spiritual gift of evangelism. Those moments when you're standing in a pub and, and I'm, I'm, I'm with a friend and he turns around to go to someone and he, you know, James, Jesus changed my life. You should come to know Jesus. And I'm sitting there going, no! That's not what you do, mate. You build it up in conversation. You, you have a relationship with them. You don't just jump in with that kind of, wow, he's going to hate you. Walks off, five minutes later, he comes back and goes, so tell me more about this Jesus. And you're like, what? It's the gift of evangelism, the spiritual gift of evangelism. God was using them in those moments. What are your spiritual gifts? What has God gifted you with? How is his grace and power working out in your life? And the title of the message um, tonight is The Right Motivation 
for ministry. Because often it's viewed that, you know, we're, we're the ministers at the front. We're the ones that do the gifting stuff. But, but the whole point of, of, of this stuff is that we are all ministers. We're all called to minister. We're all called to, to serve this community, to serve our church family, to serve the body of Christ. Every person in this room is a minister. That might be a terrifying thought. I'm not saying go and put on a dog collar or wear the robes. I'm just saying you are called to serve the church with the spiritual gifts that you have been given. So what's the motivation? What's the right motivation for ministry? That's the question I want to ask tonight. What is the right motivation for ministry? And to answer that question, I want us to look at the passage that we're looking at of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So we're going to look at it in a minute. So if you want to open your Bibles um, to have a look at it for a second. That's a weird sentence. This passage, I don't know about you, but I always, I always remember it from being read in weddings. It's always the passage you get at weddings, right? It's always that nice passage. And even, I know so many people that have faith that know this passage off by heart because it's beautiful. And it's always related, I think, to romantic relationships. But I want to kind of look at the context behind some of this text because Paul, in this text, is being very, very specific the love he's calling the Corinthians to relates to their particular context at the time. So let me explain. Corinth was um, a, a great city. Ancient Corinth was a great city in the, in the Middle East. One that had a, a lot of prominence. It was an incredible trade route. To get through to the Mediterranean to other places, you had to travel through Corinth because you didn't want to go around the treacherous waters that surrounded Corinth itself. So because it had this trade route right through the middle of the city, it brought loads of wealth. So it was an incredibly wealthy city. Uh, entrepreneurs and business people would come to it. It had this Ithmus Games, which was like their Olympics at the time. Again, it brought wealth, it brought prestige. It was an incredible city. And actually, interestingly, a lot of the problems that we find in Corinth, a lot of the context of Corinth, is, is quite similar to us today, I would suggest. The way they viewed themselves, the way the city was seen by others is quite similar to, to the UK and to Western society at large. Really, really interesting comparisons. And Paul is dealing with these problems in, in what is described by some as like a poem in, in, in chapter 13, a love poem, in which he, he deals and addresses with some of the issues he's been facing in the letter. So one of them is that the, the Corinthians were um, kind of spiritually weird, there's a spiritual weirdness. Is that what I've put on the PowerPoint, Steve? Spiritual weirdness. Now, there is a technical term for this. The theological word is over-realized eschatology. But I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, no one's going to understand it. And actually, what does it really escalate down to? Spiritual weirdness. So that's a Rossism right there. I've coined that word and that phrase. Over-realized eschatology essentially had this understanding that the end times were now. They were kind of living in the end times. So as a consequence, they kind of viewed themselves as, as almost spiritual beings. So in their times of worship, when they were using things like tongues and prophecy, it was quite unorderly. They were just throwing these things out randomly. And there was this kind of competitive nature as to the way they did it. You know, oh, look at me, mate. I prophesied three times in the service. How many times did you prophesy? Once. Uh, three times. Try and break that. I'm speaking in tongues all the time now. Do you speak in tongues? No. Well, God clearly loves me more. That's obviously about them. Not about, I'm not thinking that. That kind of competitiveness. So spiritual weirdness was quite prominent in the culture and quite prominent within the church at the time. And Paul is addressing this, as we'll see in a moment. The other is, is arrogance. There was a sense in which they had this great wealth, the great autonomy in the city itself. So there's a kind of arrogant attitude coming out of the church. And in chapter 4, Paul addresses this specifically. Another is, is, is disunity. And if you have your Bibles with you, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 to 12. Yeah, verse 10 to 12. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in, in, in what you say, and that there are no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. 
What I mean by this is one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? This unity is something that kind of flows out of this particular letter. It's something that was embedded in the Corinthian church, that they strove after these leaders. Again, was this kind of competitiveness about who they followed. I follow this leader. There was a pride and an arrogance in that. And finally, selfishness is a problem Paul seems to be dealing with in this letter. They knew that they were free in Christ. So if they were free in Christ, they could kind of do what they want, was, was the logic they followed. And, and actually, if they do something and someone else disapproves, well, that's their freedom, so they're allowed to do that. You know, that's my right, mate. You can't argue with that. That's my right to do this. It doesn't matter if that affects you or influences you. It's, it's, it's my right. This kind of selfishness that was embedded in the culture. So Paul is dealing with these problems. Let's see them in the letter itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Again, challenging that idea of, of, of a spiritual weirdness. Great, you, can, you have tongues and prophecy. Great, some of you are using them regularly and growing in that gift. But if you don't have love, if you're competitively boasting about it, if you're putting others down as a consequence of it, if you're believing you're this kind of early spiritual being, then, then what are you accomplishing? Love has to be the foundation of these spiritual gifts. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It, it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. You can see him dealing with the arrogance that is prevalent in the church. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Put your rights aside. It's not about what you want. It's about the other. How is that affecting the other? Is what you're doing a causing harm for them? Lay it aside. Put the other first. Love puts the other first. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The whole concept of love challenges this unity. Because how can you be ununified if you truly love one another, right? How can there be different groups and, and competitiveness amongst you where you follow other leaders if you truly love one another? Paul, you can just hear him almost crying out in this poem, addressing these issues. Love, really? Is it really that hard? At its base? Stop putting others, yourself first. Put others first. So what is the right motivation for ministries? Love. Love must be the foundation of us seeking spiritual gifts. We're not standing here saying, all your focus now should be seeking spiritual gifts. Your focus should be growing love for God and for others. And it's in doing that in which we, we discover these spiritual gifts that God has given us, which make us better at loving in the first place. Love should be the foundation. Love should be the motivation. Because we can conjure up the feeling, right? Because we can make ourselves loving. No, because we have a God who loves us so profoundly that his love flows into our lives, into the lives of others. The word that Paul is using, again, in here is, is agape. He's talking about agape love, which we talked about recently, right? The idea of sacrificial love, the idea that puts others first. And you know, the thing that saddens me as, as a minister sometimes is that I, I hear so many stories about people loving out in the community in amazing ways, 
um, amongst the people you love. I could commend so many people for the love that is shown to people on their front lines or in other contexts. But sometimes the biggest pain is that the people we least love or struggle with the most is our own family here in the church. Anyone ever experienced that? I, I, I sometimes don't understand it, how I can meet people who are sort of so loving outside. I'm not saying this with people in mind, even in here, actually. But I'm certainly saying it's a challenge. Are there areas in our congregation where arrogance is dominant? Where we, we, we're not unified? Areas where we're, we're selfish? Areas where, where, where actually we're claiming certain gifts are, are better than us than, than other people? And I present that to you humbly. I'm not standing here pointing the finger. But I certainly want us to think about it. Because if we're called to grow in love for God and for others, and if the foundation for spiritual gifts is love, then we've got to get that right first. What is the motivation for ministry, the right motivation for ministry? Love. Because we worship a God who loved us, who gave everything for us on the cross. In a sacrifice that we can't even comprehend. He saw us, he saw our messed upness, he saw our brokenness, he saw our unwillingness to follow him. He saw the fact that we outwardly rejected him in every single sense and yet chose not to see that, but chose to see the person that he loves. That every person here is loved and called to this community. We're going to have a response um, for this message now. And you see this amazing um, design behind me that Ellie has, has beautifully put together hours of work. Um, and she's very graciously allowed it to be used for this particular, <laughs> particular response. Um, And actually what's quite interesting about it, it says beloved. But when I first read it, for some reason, I just read beloved. I didn't even see the word beloved until later. I must be dyslexic or something. But beloved was reached out for me. So tonight, you've been responding in various ways so far. I want to encourage you, join the next song. This could get messy. However it happens, I'm getting a nod from Clive. I'm good. Come out. I hate sometimes the distinction we get between the pews, us and them. Get rid of that. Walk up. Grab one of these, um, what are they called? Wall. Also wall. <laughs> oh, my brain. I can say over-realized eschatology, but can't get a ball of wool. Anyway, maybe put it over one of the nodules like this and wrap it around. That's how it's kind of been done, right, Ellie? Nodules. This is called a nail. <laughs> wow. This is going so well. Wrap it around one of these nails. And then in that moment, ask God to express, to show you his love. To be loved. We can't be loving. We can't show this kind of love to others if we first haven't experienced the love of God. So come up as a response to this. Leave your pews and, and put the ball of, ball of, ball of wool on, <laughs> on the such wall. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for grace and, and mercy. We, we praise you um, for this time, and we praise you what you've already been doing tonight. And we pray for more. We pray for more during this time of worship. As we come to respond, as we, as we come to, to, to uh, act in this way, we pray that you may pour your love into our hearts, not in a fluffy, in a fluffy kind of manner, but in a real agape, true sacrificial way in which we can love one another more truly because we have experienced your love. In Jesus' name, amen.